0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General
1: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the The Calling History Podcast.
1: It's no wonder John Hancock was so successful. He's smart, he's funny, he's interesting, and he's willing to do what it takes to win. And yet, with all these good qualities, when I ask him why he was not the best person to lead, his answer always comes back to his core reason for doing anything, business.
0: In fact, I hope to get out of Philadelphia and get back to Boston and get things rolling the way I had them. There's talk that I might be a governor there for a short term, but I'm a businessman. I just want to make things work so that I can do things the way I see fit. I I now have a wife. I married Miss Quincy. We just want to have some children and just do things the way we always have. When you get back to Sam, Sam liked to tear things down, but I don't think in my heart he knows how to build things up. Oh, yeah. I think... I think it's going to take greater minds along the likes of perhaps John, or I think George Washington might fit the bill, where they can all of a sudden sort of put all this together and create a little bit of greater common sense. I hold in high regard Tom Jefferson. You know, he wrote this declaration, and if there's a man who could write, he's the man. He doesn't talk worth a darn, but boy, he sure can write.
2: (laughs) Leave him alone with a pen and a piece of paper in a room, and he's dangerous, huh?
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, That man, uh, basically, well, he's so talented. You know, he's taught himself five languages. Oh, my gosh, Uh, yeah. The man man is brilliant. Uh, Certainly, uh, I, I hate to admit it, maybe when it comes to business, I think I could probably bury him. But when it comes to understanding the law, he's a barrister, but he's beyond that. He basically has much more common sense. Uh, he has a fine plantation down there uh, uh, called Monticello. I understand it's quite something to see, and maybe with a little bit of good fortune, I can come down there and visit the man.
2: When you're talking about these brilliant men, and you're talking about Jefferson, and you're talking about when this is all settled, as far as somebody to be at the helm leading the colonists, that George Washington might be a good choice. Why are you not a good choice for this?
0: I I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I want to get back to Boston. That's my home. This is what I understand. We have organized it. In fact, we just agreed to it last December, well, actually, actually last October, where we're actually putting together a Navy for all of the colonies. And I'm into the uh, shipbuilding aspect of it. In fact, I think they might name one of them after me. Of course, it's going to be my money that's building them, so why not?
2: Why not, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to get back to having my fleet of merchant ships. I want to get back to something I know and something that I'm comfortable with. And I know that I can help all the people around me locally. If somebody else wants to get involved to what we call this politics thing, I think you're going to find John Adams would relish the idea of getting in there and doing something, and uh, certainly someone the likes of uh, Tom Jefferson, they think beyond this thing of how are we going to put all this together. One person they keep looking to is certainly George Washington, simply because here's a man who has the job, but he really doesn't want it, and he doesn't want to be paid for it. He, too would rather go back to his place. It's called Mount Vernon. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes. But he'd he'd like to get back to that. But he's an excellent leader. He's looked up to, and we can't put a price tag on that.
2: Okay, if George Washington doesn't want to be a leader, and he doesn't want to be a part of this, my understanding is that he showed up to the Continental Conference dressed to the nines in his military uniform. Yes, he did. That, to me, does not say, I don't want this.
0: What am I missing? Well, when he first made his first overture, the man did show up in his continental uniform because he basically was willing to put, and he actually announced it in the Congress, that he was willing to put up and basically equip and put in uniform his own Virginia militia of a 1,000 men to go and help us in the siege of Boston. This is what he was really looking to do. There was no thought at that moment of a continental army
2: whatsoever.
0: In fact, to tell you the truth, and uh, boy, I hate to admit this, but I actually wanted the job because I had actually formed the Corps of Cadets in Boston and actually provided arms and uniforms for those people in Boston. Sadly, all they decided to do was use us for its ceremonial work. I felt that I could really get in there and do things, but this damn gout that I have keeps raising its ugly head, and I end up finding myself uh, with my feet on a pillow for at least three and four days at a time until Dr. Church can finally do something. By the way, there's another sore spot.
2: Oh, I want to ask you about Dr. Ben Church. First of all, before we go... To talk about him. When you you said that you would have wanted Washington's job to be in control of the army, yes. is that
0: the best place for you? Well, in my mind, I felt it was. There's nothing greater than I thought of leading men into battle. You know what people would be saying about me? Holy smoke! I would be famous. Were you
2: not already fairly well known?
0: Well, I was. I was well known, but you know it. it you know, the interesting thing about having wealth is the next thing you want is power uh. and influence. And I think that that is some, one attribute of mankind that has not changed.
2: No, no, that, that hasn't changed. And that makes a lot of sense because I keep, I, I keep going back and forth. When you say that, I think, so what do you want more? Do you want business or do you want fame? And the thing is, you've got the business. And so the fame and the influence is the next element, which actually ends up probably improving business.
0: Exactly. One feeds the other. Sadly, now that I've already lost my fleet, I really have to get back to business. Yeah. Okay. And that's why I'm working so well with Mr. Livingston out of New York and a number of other people who basically have the wherewithal. Mr. Carrollton out of, of Maryland and so forth. Uh, All of these men are men of means who have had their ships. They are merchants and they are like-minded. Some of these other people, they are more philosophical and more political, if I were to use that word. So I have acknowledged what Mr. Washington is doing up there is something I really would not rather have to do. When he told me that he had actually forced men to dig a latrine well, this is something that I'm really not involved with and I really don't even want to think about.
2: So I've had uh, a bunch of conversations with people of, of your time. And in, the, in this conversation with you was the first time that anybody mentioned the name Ben Church. And I have to imagine that your blood is boiling right now just at the mention of his name. Could you tell the people that are going to listen to this? Because there'll probably be some children that will listen to this in schools wanting to learn a little bit about history. And I don't hear his name a lot. Could you tell me who he is, what he did?
0: From, from the very beginning, and I can go back 10 years, Ben was one of our most trusted allies. He was involved with every meeting. When we would meet in the long room at the Boston Gazette, when we met at the Green Dragon Tavern, when we met at the Bunch of Grapes, all of these taverns in putting these ideas together of our non-importation agreement. And when we organized the, the Boston Tea Party, I'm sure you heard of that, uh, he was an integral part of a lot of these plannings. Little did we know that every time he had a meeting with us, he was spreading the news back to the the uh, British Army. Oh. And he was talk- he was a good friend. His real crutch was because he was a physician, to General Gage, who was the head of the army. And we thought, what an excellent position where he could tell us what this general is doing. Little did we know that he was telling the general what we were doing and planning. And he did this so very, very well up until uh, last year. Finally, somebody, in fact, he was having an affair with a, basically, we would call a little more than a harlot. Her name was Winwood, and she was a divorcee, and he was having an affair with this woman. And he was using her to pass notes through Rhode Island, I might add, to get messages in code to Boston and to the general. Well, as luck would have it... General Gage. That's General Gage, exactly. And what happened was, and I found it just amazing is this woman actually left that ciphered note with her ex-husband, who she thought was a loyalist, and he turned out to put it in the hands of General Washington, and the rest is history. We're just trying to find out what what in the world we could do with them. Uh, They've had overtures of, well, we'd like to trade him and trade prisoners, but General Washington is basically saying, no way. I think ultimately we might just send him off and have him pris- imprisoned somewhere, but I don't know where. But the man proved to be an embarrassment to all of us because he was basically providing information to the Red Coats for many, many years without our knowing about it.
2: This has to be so challenging because this is somebody that is in your inner circle. Ben Church was part of the Sons of Liberty, wasn't he?
0: He was one of the High Sons of Liberty. In fact, the sad part is he was also a very good friend of, I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of Dr. Joseph Warren. He was basically a very, very dear friend and a physician to my family. He was killed on Bunker Hill. At that time, he had been the president of the Provincial Congress in Massachusetts and also the Committee of Safety. And what we did was we elevated Ben Church to take his place. And then we discovered that we basically... Whoa, whoa hold on for a second.
2: Hold on just a second. So Dr. Warren, after he died, Ben Church took his place? That's how Ben Church got in there? That's correct. Oh, I didn't know that. How do you even know who you're going to trust when somebody like Ben Church turns on you guys?
0: You know, I think we're discovering that there are spies everywhere. We just don't know who to trust anywhere. I hate to say this, but that's why everything we do here in this Congress is basically kept in ultimate secrecy. The only people we can really talk to are ourselves. I don't even tell my wife Dorothy what the heck is going on because who knows what she would share during a sewing circle or something.
2: When you married your wife, which was last year in your time, 1775, and you, you'd mentioned that, that seems like an odd time to get married. I mean, there's a lot going on. Yeah, well,
0: I I just decided it was it was a. Want to know the truth? I was lonely and horny, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that, I have to be blunt about it. There we were. Our our days were long in the Congress. Wasn't feeling up to uh, snuff. And I remember we adjourned in uh, last July. Yeah, it's been a year now. In August, I remember stopping because she was living with my Aunt Lydia with a dear friend in Connecticut. And by the way, you may have heard that name, Burr. Thaddeus Burr was a very good friend and another, uh, basically another businessman. And that's where they were staying. Well, I stopped. And I I spoke with her very briefly, and I said, listen, when I get back, I have some business in the colony of Massachusetts and some meetings to take care of, but on my way back, let us plan on getting married. And so we were married on the 28th of August. We had a very short engagement. I just decided it was time to do that. So we had a quick wedding, and uh, we departed the next morning and came right here to Philadelphia.
2: Well. Sounds like that's working out. Dr. Joseph Warren, let's go back to him for a second. This was an extraordinary man, wasn't it?
0: Dr. Warren's another brilliant, brilliant man. In fact, arguably, there were so many things that no one person controlled at all. You know, admittedly, we had basically, Sam Adams and I had fled Boston. And this was back in, what, April... Of 75 was even before that. It was like in March where we actually departed. And I remember spending time in Lexington with a relative because they were living in my grandfather's home. We were staying there and Sam actually departed uh, Boston shortly after I did. He joined me. And we didn't know what was going on, but thank God to Joseph Warren actually saw the British Army gathering around midnight. And they were on their way. It was on the 18th of April. They were getting in boats. And that's when he went back home and he summoned Paul Revere. And I'm sure you heard of Mr. Dawes. Mr. Dawes went out Boston Neck. But Paul actually got on a boat with some uh, river men. And they rode him under the... I don't know how he did it but he got beyond the uh, British frigate the Somerset and went across into Charlestown and borrowed a horse named Brown Beauty, I might add. He basically risked his life riding over to Lexington And then on to Concord, but he never even made it to Concord. But he actually went and sat down with myself and Sam. We actually met in the Buckman Tavern right there in town uh, near uh, Lexington Green. And we alerted the militia and everybody because we heard that the British Army was coming. And lo and behold, they did show up. In my departing the manse, which was just uh, about a mile up the road, We could hear the gunfire and everything down there on Lexington Green. We lost eight men that morning. So Dr. Warren saved your life. Yeah, actually, Dr. Warren's a guy that sent Paul to basically do a wonderful thing that he did. And if that had not happened, uh, you know, the countryside would not have been put together. Now, in light of that, I must add, that didn't just happen spontaneously because Sam Adams and Paul Revere had been going out into the hamlets and little towns all over the place months before that, organizing the little militias that ultimately were called to the fore and getting things done. That's how on that day, on April 19th, we had more than 3,000 militiamen out there taking care of the British Army.
2: Oh, so when Dr. Warren sent them out to say, hey, British are coming, and we got to do something here, and they came out to warn you guys... Prior to that, I wasn't aware of this, he'd been setting this up and letting everybody know, eventually this is going to happen. And when it happens, we need to get together and fight. That was in the works the whole time? Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely.
0: Because and otherwise, he
2: would have been riding through the town screaming, the British are coming, and they would have been like, whatever.
0: I want to give you one small correction. Nobody was yelling, the British are coming. We were all British. What uh, my good friend Revere was yelling was, the regulars are out. Oh,
2: in our time, that's a common phrase, the British are coming. But I see what you're saying, because we're all you're all British at that time.
0: Right. In fact, to tell you the truth, even right now, we are. I'm talking to you on the 4th of July in 76. And we are still British.
2: Gosh, what a time. What a confusing time. How do you even conduct business or do anything when everything is so up in the air right now?
0: And everybody has a different opinion about it. My good friend, John Adams, is on 24 committees. Our day starts at 7 in the morning, and right now I'm sitting in the city tavern, and we will not be out of here till 10 or 11 o'clock tonight because committee meetings, little meetings, We have different tables where one colony is sitting and try to intermingle as much as we can and try to get things done. But, uh, you know, I happen to be the president, so I mean, I'm technically not on any committee unless I want to impose myself. But John Adams is on 24 different committees.
2: John Adams, it seems like he, he never runs out of energy and things to say.
0: No, he he doesn't, but uh, he, basically he's vilified, he's hated and disliked by most everybody because he doesn't know how to shut his mouth <laughs> and let somebody else talk. But that's John. <laughs> he's a politician who doesn't know how to be a politician. Precisely. You know, sometimes you've got to know when to shut up and listen. That's why he's not a great businessman, and that's why sometimes they need people like me.
2: Yeah. Gosh, that's interesting. What about Ben Franklin?
0: You spend
1: a
2: lot of time with Dr. Franklin? Uh,
0: Well, you know, Ben is a hard guy to nail down. You know, number one, he is the sage and probably arguably the most famous guy we had. But I remember I spoke to him briefly after he arrived back from England where he had been gone for 11 years. He arrived six months after his common law wife had passed away. Talk How do you maintain a marriage and you have legitimate children, illegitimate children, and she run, keeps the home fires burning while he's over in England doing God knows what. And we have heard all kinds of stories about that, where he is known as, you know, just a rue in every salon you could imagine over there. Really? But Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, He was quite a womanizer. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was having a good time over there in England. But taking all that away, when they discovered that he had actually sent some documents back that he had received letters written by the governor of Massachusetts about his taking rights away and uh, having a bigger army. And he exposed Thomas Hutchinson for what he really was, which is nothing but a a self-serving egomaniac, as far as I'm concerned, as governor. But he sent copies of those letters back. And he told Sam, here's what's really going on, but don't publicize those. Well, Sam puts them in the paper. <laughs> and and so it creates a, a very, very big problem, which, you know, from a legal standpoint, raises all, all kinds of questions. But that's when John Adams really got involved with a lot of this. But getting back to Ben... He was actually dragged into an area of Whitehall called the Cockpit. It used to be where they actually had cockfights under Henry VIII. And in the cockpit, the uh, attorney general named Wedderburn vilified him and excoriated him for, oh, at least an hour. Where Ben did not say a word. He just stood there with this audience all around the cockpit watching him get run down as being a traitor to the crown, a spy, a no-goodnik, and everything you could imagine. They were calling him names, everything except his Christian name. After that hour, he could not even get an audience with anybody in the realm. And shortly thereafter, he basically just came back to uh, the colonies. And when he did come back in Philadelphia, he was given a hero's welcome. He is probably the first American to come out and use that word saying, I am no longer British, I'm an American.
2: Such a brilliant mind, and the British went the wrong way with Benjamin Franklin, because he was a loyal British citizen, he, although he was, he was a little bit on both sides, wasn't he?
0: Up until that time, yes. Oh yes, he was basically looking out for the, as I used, gave you the term, they were known as factors, and he was basically there representing a number of colonies. Uh, you know, he represented Pennsylvania, but he was also the agent for Massachusetts, trying to get the crown to come to some common sense way of saying, "Listen, remove these taxes, stop doing this stupid stuff, and you can have great colonies which have more potential than you can imagine." They just wouldn't listen to him.
2: So he was trying to get back to business too, just a different kind of business.
0: Oh yes. Oh yeah. I mean, he was uh he was uh, quite a man about town.
2: Gosh, that's interesting.
0: So Thomas Hutchinson, to kind of set the
2: stage, this is someone we know, but again, is not talked about as frequently. Thomas Hutchinson was the governor of Massachusetts.
0: That's correct.
2: And then when the the crown was unhappy with what he was doing, then they sent General Gage over and said, "You need to get control because Hutchinson's not getting things squared away." Now you just said Hutchinson was an egomaniac, but didn't you have a decent? Did you? Did you have a relationship with him?
0: Well, certainly. He was a a merchant. His only problem was, for example, he was in business with his two sons. And when it came to the non-importation agreement, where we said we're not going to import British goods, guess who was importing them? Mm. It was Tom. Yeah. Uh, And by the way, he really had a, a thorn in his side with the whole arrangement, because during the Stamp Act, when he was lieutenant governor under a guy named Bernard, He uh, upset a lot of people, and I mentioned the name earlier, Ebenezer McIntosh. Yeah. Well, uh, with the urging of Sam, they actually visited his home when all the Stamp Act was going on. And remember, uh, not only was he the lieutenant governor, he was also the superior court chief justice, and they just didn't like him one darn bit, so... They went in there. The first thing they did was knock down his fence around his house over on Hanover Street. And uh, then they cut down his orchards, and then they broke every window in his house, Wow! Which at, that, which at that time he escaped out the backyard with just his clothes on his back with his family and went to a, another Tory house to hide. And then everybody went into his uh, home and ransacked the place, and they emptied his wine cellar. When he showed up for court the next day, he apologized that he did not have his robes or even a suit because everything had been stolen and shattered and everything was gone.
2: Not a lot of fans of Thomas Hutchinson.
0: No. In fact, it was kind of interesting. Being a uh, Superior Court Chief Justice, he actually uh, called a hearing and actually spoke to Sheriff Greenleaf to find out who the culprits were well, everybody knew who it was, but interestingly enough, everybody had an alibi.
2: <laughs> he wasn't there really to govern. He's—he was just a greedy merchant,
0: is that right? I would—I would look at it that way. He liked to think that he was taking the high ground and everything. And basically, you know, he really had an untenable job. When the Boston Massacre happened, the chief merchants actually went to his home and dragged him over to the uh, old State House and said, "Hey." we got to get this, some peace rearranged. And he's the man who actually saved the day by telling the army, go out to Castle William and remove all the troops out there for a while so we can defuse this situation. Because they were afraid that, you know, you could have a giant civil war and God knows how many people would have gotten killed then. He had a tough job.
2: Yeah, for sure. So what happened, what changed when when they put General Gage in there?
0: Well, Things were just totally out of hand. The army had been removed, and there was just nothing he could get done. Basically, he was a governor that was unable to govern, because Sam Adams had actually sent a petition to the King of England, take this guy back, get him out of here, and send us somebody that we could work with. Being a governor that couldn't govern anymore, they actually just removed him and replaced him with a military governor. And by the way, that was done very, very crudely. When General Gage showed up, he went to uh, Hutchinson's office and said, Pack your bags, you're getting out of here. Wow. So it was kind of cold, but that's exactly what the Crown was living with, and they felt it was time to put something together that would really work. Uh, Sadly, when Gage took over, he tried to use a, a firmer hand, but that wasn't working too well.
2: When you say he used a firmer hem, can you give me some examples of
0: that? Well, maybe I'm introducing a new word, but he uh, basically prorogued the Assembly and the House in the Massachusetts legislature. He basically said, we're no longer meeting in Boston. We are now going to convene in Salem, making things very inconvenient for anybody to do any real business. In so doing, he also said, No longer will the judges be paid by the legislature. Judges will now be paid by the crown, basically taking control of the courts away from the people and putting it in the hands of him. And so you see that basically he was removing the ability to self govern. And he was doing this in small increments. As you slowly erode and chip away, At the way you're accustomed to doing things, this was just raw meat for Sam Adams and uh, the rest of the men in the taverns to sit there and say, we're not going to put up with this. That's when they started organizing these militias and having them drilling. They didn't like it. And that's when they started having their raids on powder reserves. And they actually went to Cambridge and took all the powder out. Remember, I don't know, there was a, called a powder alarm, where the Gage was just confiscating everything he could so that no warring could be done by these little militias. And then it ultimately culminated when he said, listen, we have the largest cachet of it over in Concord. Now, the interesting thing about that, while I'm thinking about it, is how did he know that all of those weapons and gunpowder were at Concord? A guy named Ben Church. Yeah,
2: Ben Church is telling him, all, giving him all that information.
0: Absolutely.
2: Oh, Ben Church. There's there's not going to be any plaques anywhere remembering Ben Church, is there?
0: No. In fact, very few people know about him, but he was very effective in, uh, you know, I'll give him one accolade. He's one of the names that helped a lot of us think with one mind. You know, what do you, you mean by you that? Need a, you need a common enemy. Oh, yeah. And he certainly helped us with that. Yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying. The British government could have stopped this at any time. You know, we started this whole talk with the Stamp Act. Had they just stopped right there, we would have a Union Jack flying over what we call the United States. But no, they couldn't. Okay, let's do the Intolerable Act. Let's tax this. Let's tax that. Let's take this right away. Let's take that right away. Let's take your ships. We can do anything we want. And the more a government imposes itself on you, the more it will be resented.
2: There's no way that anybody would tolerate that. I mean, it's, it's so understandable how we've made it to this point because the British government just kept adding one thing after the other, making it impossible for you to function, to do business.
0: And the business of America is business.
2: Yeah, it's true.
0: If there had been no
2: Sam Adams, who was the rattle rouser that would have taken his place?
0: There were a lot of minor players, but arguably I would say this. We would not be the country we are it was not for Sam Adams.
2: Yeah, no question. I can
0: honestly, my, my opinion is that he was the guy that when the same voices like mine were saying, hey, listen, they finally buckled under, they got rid of this. In fact, when it came to the Intolerable Acts, they said, we're going to take away the taxes of everything. Everything. Don't worry about it. We're going to leave only one tax, and that's tea. Sam wouldn't let that go.
1: (laughs) And that's where we
0: ended up with the Boston Tea Party. I mean, that just blew everything up, because after the tea party, remember, all of that tea, theoretically, belonged to King George. Understand that. That was East India tea. right? Bohi tea. In so doing, when they did that, God, it escapes me what the uh, value of that would be, but it would be in the millions of dollars. There was 342 chests of tea thrown into the harbor in the mud. And in so doing, that was a giant insult that forced General Gage and everybody to then all of a sudden do what? They actually shut down the port. That's what really caused Hutchinson to lose his job. That's when they said, okay, we need somebody with a strong arm to go in there, and that's what put Gage in power, where they created the Port Act, where they actually shut down Boston Harbor. And that put me way out of business.
2: I suspect that you knew that the the Tea Party was going to happen.
0: Oh. uh, (laughs) I I was selling Indian blankets and providing tomahawks and everything for a lot of those Indians. (laughs) <laughs>
2: okay, so I am to take that definitely
0: as a yes. <laughs> That's fabulous. And we helped uh, put those guys in uniform, put feathers in their hair. I remember we did it in the upstairs room of the Boston Gazette. <laughs> okay, but you didn't participate, though, beyond that. You know, nor did, you know, Sam was down there in the crowd watching it. Because half the town was down there watching all of this happen. I had too much to lose because there were spies all over the place. In fact, when those guys walked up, when it was over with, they walked up King Street and the admiral of the fleet was actually looking out the window and he says, uh, you guys will pay for this. And of course they told him, well, come on down You can We'll pay for it right now. Well, they didn't, he didn't take them up on that. But, you know, keep in mind that, Less than a quarter mile away, there was a British frigate sitting in the harbor watching them do all this stuff, and everybody was surprised that they didn't open fire, so you know it was a it was a very, very tenuous time. They were' in firing uh, range, oh yes, oh yeah, yeah, the British Navy watched this whole thing go down, but Thomas Hutchinson would not let them fire on anybody because he didn't want his. How do, you, how do you have subjects to the crown if you killed them? Yeah, that makes sense. You know,
2: as we get further into this, I, I, keep, I go back and forth how you got along with Sam Adams. And one moment I'm like, I don't understand. And the next moment it's crystal clear. And I'm having another one of those crystal clear moments. Although you were involved in so much, you're also behind the scenes in a lot that's going on in the same way that Sam Adams is, but in just a different way you're kind of pulling the strings behind where people aren't watching. As you're saying, you supplied tomahawks and blankets and all that.
0: Well, exactly. You know, uh, they needed gunpowder, you know, whatever. I mean, I was providing weapons. Sam couldn't have done anything. You know, it's kind of interesting. What happens without money? Nothing. And Sam knew it, and that's why he basically took me into his circle of friends. In retrospect, I think that's probably the only reason. Because uh, we had very, very little in common beyond that. But at the time, we had a symbiotic relationship. Sam had created this minuscule little army of derelicts like Ebenezer McIntosh, who was a a cobbler, and other people who basically could do what we call the dirty work. And he had organized all of them. The one thing that they needed was who's going to buy them rum, who's going to feed them, and all that without any financing sam would have been dead in the water except nothing but somebody howling in the wind but combining our resources together this turned out to be something that really tore down the old system leaving a vacuum where you know ultimately we could create something that was quite profound
2: i didn't think we were going to be talking about sam adams as much as we have on this but if there had been no revolution or a need to fight for liberty, you probably would not have been so well acquainted because he more or less would have been one of, as you said, I can't remember how you worded it, the great unwashed or something like that. He just would That's have been out of your circle, wouldn't he have been?
0: Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, absolutely. He was just, he was that interface that was always in the taverns all the time uh, urging people to do this, do that. It's how some people got tarred and feathered. It's the reason many of the guys who were customs officials and everything went and hit on Castle uh, William because they knew that their homes would get broken into and uh, they would be harmed. So let me
2: talk just a little bit about Bunker Hill, or Breed's Hill.
0: And General
2: Howe was on the other side of that battle, right? Yes. What, what is Boston like after that battle?
0: It became uh, a real mess. General Gage had sent General Howe to, of course, it was Howe's idea anyway. So he was over there with another general named PIGOT, P-I-G-O-T. They they bit off more than they could chew. They didn't really expect what happened. We would not have lost Bunker Hill if we had only given them enough gunpowder to continue fighting. But our guys ran out of gunpowder. After the third assault on the hill. By that time, I know that Howe had arrived with, oh, close to like 2,500 men. And he was down to 1,000 men when he made that last assault. Wow. And that was only because he got some reinforcements from General Clinton showed up with a a third wave of men. And among them was a guy named, you might have heard of Major John Pitcairn, who was basically famous during the uh, Lexington Concord expedition. Major Pitcairn got actually killed on Bunker Hill. When we took it, we lost about 400 men. But they said that Howe really lost, I think it was close to 250 killed, but another 1,000 wounded. It decimated a good chunk of uh, General Gage's army at the time. So when they licked their wounds and came back, yeah, they, uh, they basically took over the Charlestown Peninsula. But in so doing, they actually burned the town down. And in ruining Charlestown, that just set the stage for there's no way to, there's no peace now.
2: Was because, that the moment? Uh, Even Lexington, there was a way back, and, but after Bunker Hill, there was, there was no way back? Is, was that the moment?
0: The, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, after Lexington and Concord, it was basically a siege, but not that many had been killed. The British got routed, and they went back through Charlestown, back to Boston. They basically had survived that whole thing, and there was still talk that they might work out a peace. But after Bunker Hill, the British crown said, wait a minute, this is an insult to our army. So now now everybody's trying to save face.
2: Oh, I see. And, it's a pride issue after Bunker Hill.
0: Well, certainly,
2: certainly. Uh.
0: And then to add insult to injury, after that, for example, they took the Old South Church and made it a riding academy and stables for the horses and the dragoons. They actually took the Green Dragon Tavern and made it a hospital, and then they did the affront of all things. They went and took Faneuil Hall and made it a theater, and they were putting on stage plays, which was an affront to everything, which you would call Puritan ethic. Mm. Then they started tearing houses down because they needed firewood.
2: What a mess. No wonder there's no way to turn back. Where were you when that battle was happening? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I was in Philadelphia, right here at the City Tavern.
2: Is that right?
0: That's correct.
2: Why did not nobody stop Joseph Warren from running to the front?
0: Well, he, the interesting thing is he had been ill. He, I, I think he suffered what you would call migraine headaches. Right. And, uh, he had been losing sleep and everything, and so everybody was away. I don't know if you recall Colonel Prescott. William Prescott was in charge of all of that at Bunker Hill, and everybody else was sort of riding around inspecting it, and when when Joseph Warren woke up, he was in Hastings' house at the time, and he was sleeping upstairs, and when he came downstairs, there was basically nobody around, and he had a colleague that was a young doctor, right? and they said, well, what's going on? He said, well, we're going to Bunker Hill, and Warren said, well, let's go to Bunker Hill. Uh, they're certainly going to need doctors, and remember, he was a doctor, so oh, yeah. he He went, and he had been, shortly before that, actually commissioned by the Congress as a major general in the militia. So, on paper, he was a major general, but he knew nothing about being a general, and he admitted it. So, he went and borrowed a musket and went up there and said, I'm going to fight with you guys. And, make a long story short, he was the finest dressed guy up there on the hill. And uh, during the evacuation, uh, he got uh, he got killed, he got shot in the head. And then he got severely bayoneted after that because they realized who he was.
2: Do you think if you had been there, do you think you would have been on the battlefield?
0: Knowing me, yes, I would have tried to be there because I felt that I was a military genius. I would, I probably would have done it erroneously in hindsight, but no, I'd have probably insisted to be there. I, in fact, I would have probably told Colonel Prescott that I'm going to be the general. You know, you can't do this. I know. I'm, I know more than anybody else. You might have course, been right too. <laughs> could could be. <laughs> what? Long and the short of it, no. I was here in Philadelphia and taking care of things in that fashion.
2: Well. Mr Hancock, I'm I'm so appreciative of your time today. I just have a couple last questions I'm gonna ask you if you have a moment and and then I, I just I'm I'm so thankful for your contribution to, to everything that happens next. And that, that is the first thing that I wanna ask you, these last questions. What is gonna happen next? I mean it's the fourth of July, seventeen seventy six. What do you think is gonna happen next based on what you're seeing?
0: Uh, Well, i tell you what. I have a funny feeling that somehow George Washington is going to put all this together. I mean, there is one thing he can do. He can take a group of men who basically have nothing and make them an effective army. And I have total faith that he is really going to bring this about and then we'll we'll certainly be the united colonies. I don't think we're going to be what uh, Sam Adams envisions. He envisions... A situation where there is no government, we all go back to our farms and our businesses and we live peacefully together without any government taxing anything and telling us what to do. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to have something a little bit larger than that. I think that each colony is going to be running itself. I think that Boston will control everything in Massachusetts and let the men in Williamsburg control everything in Virginia, and that's the way it should ultimately turn out.
2: You know, Sam Adams' vision of what he would like to see happen is is a beautiful place where people are left alone to live freely, and yet if he accomplished that goal somehow, some
0: country well. would come in and take us over. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one argument that's been going on with George Washington. He is insisting that we need what is called a standing army. He says that we cannot exist with just these militias from each state where they have their separate allegiances. Somehow, I think George has this vision that we need something larger. We're going to have to create something akin to basically being another... Great Britain, or God forbid, a France. But it's going to have to be, in his mind, I think he envisions a country, nothing to the extent that there's going to be a king or anything like that. I think that the idea of royalty is an anathema, and I don't think that will happen here.
2: Well, we're all thankful in this time for uh, that there was somebody like George Washington to pull this, pull this together, because you're right, he's, he ends up being the right guy. Two questions left. Are you? Do you play chess, and are you good at it?
0: <laughs> I play chess poorly. <laughs> How is that possible? Chess is all about moving the pieces
2: and knowing where they yeah. need to be.
0: Yes, I know. Well, you know, the thing is there's so many permutations and combinations. To echo what some of my mathematician friends would say, that I wish I had more time to devote to it. But I am hell-bent on putting this all together. Uh, My signature is here, but uh, we're going to be putting a more decorous document together and a formal declaration of independence, and hopefully you'll be able to see it sometime in the future.
2: I would have guessed that you could play a solid game of chess and win while reading a book. That would have been my guess. Last question. In normal time. When everybody's not fighting and everything is just not upside down, is there any person you'd rather go drinking with than Sam Adams?
0: Oh, if I were to have, I would probably really enjoy, and I have relished his time, and this might surprise you, but there are two men. Tom Jefferson, he's not a great orator or a speaker in crowds, but to talk to a man who has excellent ideas and is so very, very well-read. I enjoy Tom's company and also Dr. Benjamin Rush from hmm. Philadelphia. Okay. Because ben has a, he has a little colleague uh, along with Ben Franklin. The guy's name is Tom Payne. Mm-hmm. And Tom Payne wrote an interesting book titled Common Sense earlier this year and I would recommend that anybody read that because you want to catch some man who has some great ideas. These men I really enjoy talking with because it seems like they're looking to the future and looking back saying, here's where we made mistakes. I think we can do better. Mr.
2: Hancock, I'm so thankful for your contribution and thankful for your time today, and I hope that they find a solution to your gout so you don't have to deal with that in the future, and I, I wish you good
0: health. I thank you, sir, and the same to you and yours. It has been a pleasure speaking with you.
1: If John Hancock were alive today, people would love him. He'd be worth $500 billion. He'd be making piles of money, and everyone would be involved. You'd find him at the bar a few nights a week, drinking with insurance agents and vendors, and then the next night he'd be eating at the White House. But in his time, He was literally pushed to make an impossible decision to focus all of his efforts into one important endeavor, the success of the American experiment to create a new free government. But what if that had not happened? What if he had packed up and taken his money elsewhere? What if he'd called King George and said, yo, Georgie, these traitors, colonists, they're all out of their minds. I'm relocating. I'm coming to England. Then what? If that had happened, where would the money for gunpowder and muskets and food and supplies come from? Without funding, would the militia have been standing around with empty stomachs, holding empty muskets? Hancock played a critical role in the revolution, but probably was not the most important founding father. But once you factor in the money funding America's efforts, maybe he was. Earlier in the conversation, Hancock said the phrase, A Shaggin' for a Shillin'. And as luck would have it, there's a book with that title. Check it out. I'm reading it now and I'm enjoying it. There's a link in the podcast notes with the full title. Thanks for listening and don't forget that when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean and until next time, I'm history.